When is the time someone seemed to know just what you needed? Okay, middle schoolers. I went to middle school, okay? More than that, you may not believe this, but I graduated from middle school. And uh, it was 1961, not 1861, 1961. And I was a seventh grader, and they had put me in advanced math, and I was struggling. So as a seventh grader, uh, I worked really hard because I wanted to take algebra in eighth grade. But to do that, I needed an A in seventh grade advanced math. Well, I was always the B plus A minus region. Never quite good enough. So I was thinking, oh, great, i got to take this class again next year. That's called failing to me. So uh, <clears throat> my teacher comes to me, and he makes me an offer that I really can't refuse. He looks me in the eye and says, Jim, I will give you the benefit of a doubt to give you at least an A- minus if you do one thing for me. <laughs> I was motivated. I want you to try out for cheerleader. <laughs> I said, look, I, I know it's middle school, you know, it's seventh grade, and I would try out and serve in eighth grade. I'd be a cheerleader in eighth grade. And I said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, you at least have to try out and do your best. So I did. I tried out. There were probably 12 guys who had tried out. Oh, by the way, at that time, cheerleaders are only men. Those were the good old days, all right? Okay, cheerleaders were only men, and I tried out, and there were 12 others that were trying out, and for some reason, I won. And, un, you know, I, I had no... All I had to do was try out. I didn't have to get it. So I don't know what their means of judging were, but I didn't think I was that good. Anyway, the next year starts, and that first week... The cheerleaders are introduced to the whole school, and here's Jim DeMoller, and here's what he dresses in from, tip, from top to toe. Understand, this was white T-shirt and jeans era, okay? That's how you came to school. Uh, so I have a boater hat, you know, that straw round hat on top. And then I have a cardigan, a white cardigan sweater that goes way down below your knees with a big E for my high school, for my middle school on it. Big green E. Under that I have a white shirt. And, and then I have white Bermuda shorts that I get to wear to school. And that goes way down, of course, below your knee. And then below that are white knee socks all the way up to the knee. Here's the kicker. White belt to hold it all up. And white buck shoes. Guess you had to take that, that chalk and, you know, do this every time you scuff them. And I have to admit that the first time I showed up in that, I wanted to hide. I, I said, what does this mean? But I practiced the cheers, and for every game that was, we had uh, four games at home, and for every, uh, every football game, every pep rally, for that whole year, I would show up and, and dress like that, and I'd be one of only six guys that would get to do that. And I have to admit this to you. I loved it. <laughs> and it suddenly, it took a while, but I go back to that math teacher. And he was able to see inside of my soul and understand that here was a guy who was a little shy. Yes, a little shy. Um, 
who had lived in an area of the school district where from elementary to middle school to high school, every time he would go to a new school and most of his friends would go to another one. So every time I went to a new school, I always had to make friends of again. Well, let's be honest. It was a bribe, and I took it. And I got my A. I still don't know if I earned it or not. But I got to take algebra the next year. I saw myself as having a need for an A. My math teacher saw me as having a need for a life. And he was able to go much deeper into my psyche, into my personal being. When has someone known just what you needed? That's what we're talking about this morning. You see, I'm in a series that I am really excited about. It's because these are the passages that have motivated me for the last 40 years in ministry to people. Not, you know, professional ministry, but talking to people. Just like you do. And as we've been doing this, it all always has to start with God. This church is here to honor God. And it starts with God. And so this first week, and you can go back two more weeks, this first week we had to say God was very amazing, but he's very different than us. And Isaiah 55 tells us that his thoughts are different than our thoughts and his ways are different than our ways. More than that, his thoughts are higher, better, perfect, superior to our ways and superior to our thoughts. That's why as I study the Bible, I I come to know a God who's not just human. He knows my condition, but he's, he's beyond that. So we were looking at, okay, we need to be students of God's thoughts and God's ways. That's the first thing that changed my whole heart. There is a God and he is knowable. He reveals himself. The second thing was that we understand that God's plan, one of his thoughts and one of his ways, is he wants to bring all of humanity under the leadership, the lordship of Christ Jesus. And he's going to do that. But he has a different method than maybe others would use. It's not slave faith. It's not, you know, uh, you know here's the rewards you're going to get. Get in line and you'll get them. Instead, He has in mind that he is going to do disciple-making through his son Jesus, who then will make more disciples and a next generation of disciples and a next generation. And that's the main method he's been using for these last 2,000 years. And the church continues to swell and spread around the world. That's one of his thoughts. And that's one of his ways. And I want to say this because in the passage we're about to enter, there's no classroom. There's no textbook and we, when we use the word discipleship, we're thinking of a program or a, or a class or a book that we have to read. When you're, when you're really following Jesus, you have to understand Jesus Christ always has me in a lab with him. It's not so much a classroom, but it's a practicum. I'm working on it. I, I'm involved in it. And so this thought of, God's ways and God's thoughts of making disciples who will make disciples and make disciples. Understand that it's God's way to do it and it is higher and more effective than anything we could ever think of. So in Mark chapter 2, the very almost the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we watch Jesus make disciples. 
and understand that he's going to do it in ways that you probably know the account, but you probably haven't connected the dots with how he is making disciples. I'm in Mark chapter 2, and uh, it is Jesus returning to the city or the town where he had started, Capernaum, where he has a disciple who has a home there. And so it says in Mark chapter 2, a few days later, beginning at verse 1, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, meaning uh, the home where he had started the ministry. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some of some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them, meaning there's more than four, but four did the carrying, probably on a pallet. And since they could not get him to Jesus, the paralytic, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat uh, that, the paral- that the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. That's just the beginning of what's going on here. But I want you to understand that what we're looking at is like a, it's like a grab bag, you might say. It's like a grab bag of of different peoples who have come together. Uh, Understand that whenever Jesus taught, there was, there seemed to be a growing number of people that wanted to hear him. So he could fill a house easy. If he went to a synagogue, a larger space, he would fill that. And if he went to a hillside, he could fill the hillside. People love to hear Jesus teach God's word to them. But Jesus is more than a teacher. He sees, like like that math teacher, the longings of the human soul and he longs to quench them. And as I read that this large crowd has gathered, I have to understand within the large crowd, Jesus sees several smaller groups and, and at least one individual. And so within this home, there are disciples, there are teachers of the law, there's this man with a special need, there is the large crowd that want to hear him teach, and there's a group of people that came just to help this paralytic, and the paralytic is there too. Lowered through the roof. Now you've got to admit that's a unique need. When it says in verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. The unique need here is a physical one. They want the paralyzed man healed by Jesus. And his supporters are carrying him to do just that. And, And so... They get him to the door. They can't get through the door. There's people outside of the house trying to hear all that they can as Jesus teaches. And so they take an outside staircase up to the top of that flat roof. And they dig a hole in the roof. Hopefully they knew something about roof repairs afterwards. They dig that hole in the roof. And they lower their paralyzed friend through that hole. Um, And... uh, you got, you, you know, here you, you got to admit that stole the show, right? I mean, here's this guy coming down. And, and just for you parents out there, we have done this with every one of our children. They played the paralytic and we've lowered them from the staircase. They all survived. Just want you to know that. And it was so fun to talk to them about this. So, um, 
they've lowered him. And, and everybody is looking at this paralytic and they're thinking Jesus is going to heal them. He's going to meet the physical need. But because he's Jesus, he sees the paralyzed man before him. He also says he sees the faith of the four who did everything they possibly could to get this man to Jesus. These four roof rippers, these four bed carriers, these four supporters of the paralytic. So they... They lower him down, and there is this quiet moment. And in this quiet moment, it comes time for Jesus to speak. And what is everybody expecting? That Jesus is going to come over to this man, lay his hands on him, and help with the physical need. The physical need. This man needs to walk again. And Jesus looks at this man, and he says just five famous words. Son, your sins are forgiven. Nobody took him there to have his sins forgiven. Now what are you doing, Jesus? Well, he's looking into the soul of a man and the soul of a whole crowd. And he gets it. And so as he uses those words, first the first one, son, that means this, this poor guy who's, who's on display and doesn't know what's about to happen, he feels comforted by the fact that Jesus greets him uh, like a friend or a son. But the next four words are very confusing. Why are you talking about forgiving when what we need is healing? Now, I was reading a blog about this um, this situation, and it was a blog. Now, some of you think that's a miracle in itself, right, that I read blogs. And and that's probably the first one I've ever read. But it's done by a, a man by the name of Benjamin Watson. Now, you might think, well, is he a famous theologian? No, he's a tight end for the Baltimore Ravens. Um, and uh, he is most famous for a 2005 or January 2006 incident because when he, when he broke into the NFL, he broke in with the Patriots. Now, if you're new to the community, there's three football teams we hate. It used to be the Raiders, but you don't have to hate them anymore because they're so bad, okay? <laughs> it's been the Baltimore Ravens because they beat us at all the bad times, but most of all, I would say we hate the Patriots, we know they cheat, we know they beat us way too often, and we know that they deal with the schedule so that about six years in a row, we had to play him in Boston. So um, he is just in his second year with the, with the New England Patriots. And uh, here's the situation. Uh, the Broncos uh, are on defense. No, the, yeah, the Broncos are on defense, and, 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 and the Patriots are just about ready to score near the Bronco end zone. And a, a pass is thrown, and it's intercepted, 2006, January, by a, a probably the fastest guy in the NFL at the time, Champ Bailey. Champ Bailey has an open field, and he's faster than everybody else. So he screams down the sideline, and he's, he starts two, uh, uh, two yards deep, in his, in his own end zone, and he screams down the sideline, and he runs 101 yards. About 20 yards from the end zone, he decides to show off because he thinks he's so fast and he's all alone. You know how you do that? And he slows way down. Benjamin Watson 
ran 105 yards from his from that end zone, and he caught him, he tackled him, and Champ fumbled the ball. Now, if you're a Boston Patriot fan, what are you doing here? No, if you're a Boston <laughs> Patriot fan, you have to understand that they thought it was a touchback that went in the end zone. Video helped us. It was a fumble on the one-yard line. We eventually got the touchdown, and we eventually won the game, which makes me smile. Okay. But this is Benjamin Watson. And that video is shown again and again in terms of, as a football player, as an NFL player, you are determined never to stop, never to give up until you hear the whistle. And this is shown to even in, you know, in, in Pop Warner League. So Benjamin Watson is also a Christian and a good one. He knows his God and he knows his Bible. And, uh, and he has written on the situation that's going on right now in the NFL and other professional sports. And he's written about, you know, the, the racial divide that seems to be emerging in such big ways. Now, he's not a trained theologian, but man, does this guy get it right. Benjamin Watson. Ultimately, the problem is not a skin problem. It is a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover for our own. Sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through his son Jesus. The cure for the Michael Brown Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner tragedies is not education or exposure. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Jesus goes to this man and he touches a need that maybe the man didn't even know he had. He does something very different than what he, than what everybody else expected. But as he does it, everything in the room begins to change. Ultimately, the problem is not a skin problem, but a sin problem. And we are now showing, for the first time probably in 20 years, at the beginning of every game, who's kneeling when the national anthem is played. We've never shown the national anthem before, okay? Now... um, So in the midst of that, he tries to present something that is out of the box, something that God says is very important, and if you get this, it changes the way you live. But many are not getting it. So uh, the cure for the tragedies that we are undergoing is not education or exposure, it's the gospel. And the good news of Jesus Christ is described in an event that happened over 2,000 years ago, but the solution then is as true as it is today. Son, your sins are forgiven. Everybody is confused why Jesus says that. I hope you're not confused. I'm not confused. It's been very clear to me that Jim DeMoler is a sinner. I am a minister. I have no idea if I'm a worse sinner than you. But I know I'm a sinner. And there is a solution I need to my sin. I thought you were all going to say amen when I said I'm a sinner, okay? 
thank you for your restraint. Now, if maybe you don't agree with, uh, with me this morning, that you don't think sin is your problem, then understand what he's trying to say is it's a human problem. It's a human race problem. And you're a human. And if you're a human, you have a sin problem. And Jesus has the solution for all of humanity, but he has a solution for you. Your sins can be forgiven. That's the first thing that comes through these words. And secondly, Jesus comes to earth on God's mission, not just to tell us that our sins can be forgiven, but to make it happen by taking the penalty of our sins upon himself. Now, there is in that room some teachers of the law. Let me read verses 6 and 7 where we left off. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can? And in a way, they're right. If sins are committed going against the perfect will of God and his perfect holiness, then they're committed against him, not just against other people. So these people are the most respected uh, and moral people but unfortunately, they're also, they take the role of policemen. And, and they got Jesus in what they think is one of those gotcha moments, okay? Uh, <clears throat> we got you because you have said more than you're allowed to say. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus, are you claiming to be God? And why, yes, the answer would be, yes, Jesus is claiming to be God with the authority from God to forgive sins. And then in verses 8 to eight to 10, they show us that Jesus is not afraid to declare that he is God. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking. They didn't have to say it. He could look into their souls. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your pallet, and go home. It's sort of a jumble here. And again, this man's need was very important to him, to the followers, to anybody who saw the situation. But more important was who is Jesus? More important is, is this just another rabbi who's roaming around the countryside getting followers? Or have we just seen a display of deity? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's a rhetorical question spoken to a Jesus audience The Jews have seen people be cured or be healed. Paralyzed people have been cured uh, by prophets in the Old Testament, but not very often. By apostles in the New Testament, but not very often. But healings, you know, they have stories of healings. But only God, and at this moment through Jesus' declaration, only God who is both in Jesus, both fully man and fully God, can look someone in the eye and declare, your sins are forgiven. Now, I can do that 
through the authority of God's word. If you place your trust in Jesus Christ, one of the things that he does as God's son and savior and Lord, one of the things he does is he tells me that people's sins are forgiven so I can look in the eye, not that I have the authority, but I have the authority of that word of saying your sins are forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross. So I have to ask right now, and this is not the end, this is not the altar call, okay? Do you know for certain that your sins are forgiven? Past, whatever has already happened today, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, until it's your last one, and you go to be with Jesus Christ in heaven. Are you certain? And if you are not, you're here for a reason today. To make certain that that's true, And would you talk to me or someone that you know that also knows that that sins can be forgiven between you and God and there needs to be no barrier between you and God? Will you talk to somebody today? But he also does the miracle. And the miracle is performed out of compassion for a paralyzed man and recognition of the faith of those four friends, but also to give a clear picture of who this Jesus is that they're dealing with. He heals the man. He quiets his critics. He amazes the crowd and he builds his disciples. This Jesus is God. And he proves it by his power. He proves it by his words. But I want to say this. Because this is where we jump in. Jesus also proves it by his divine ability to reach into people's hearts. And speak to them about the deepest needs of their lives. May I ask you two very simple questions. Who is this Jesus who comes to earth, declares that he is God, and displays and proves that he is God by dying on his cross for his sins? Who is he? Have you answered that question? But the second one is this. If you were to just to be alone and be with God, nobody else around you, and you were to share with God, Lord, my deepest need right now is. What is your deepest need? What is it? Psychologists tell us, and we should read psychology, we're a jumble and a, you know, we're just an exuberance, a overflowing of needs. Somebody once wrote about a whole person set of needs, physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual. Do you see what's going on in, in this passage? He, he's speaking to the spiritual needs of sins forgiven and, and the spiritual needs of the teacher saying Jesus is God's son, but he's also speaking to the physical needs of a paralytic. What is your deepest need? A gangly seventh grader thinks that he needs an A. But a very wise teacher thinks he needs a life. Sometimes we can't even say what our deepest needs are. Sometimes we're not even aware. 
But if you take those physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual and understand sometimes they're individual, sometimes they're in a whole group that you have, sometimes they're felt, sometimes they're unfelt. But I want you to know God is looking into your soul. And he knows perhaps even more than you do. And when you share with him what your deepest need is and you listen to him, he might just amaze you with his thoughts and his ways that are different than yours. Um, I've been with frantic people within a crisis. Um, You know, they're just running around doing whatever they possibly can. And I've sometimes looked at them and I said, you know, you, you may you may say I'm crazy, but what I think you really need right now is a good night's sleep. Why don't you just go home? Give me five things that you want me to do for you. Just go home and be alone and see if you can sleep. Sometimes we have to understand to get to the spiritual needs as followers of Jesus Christ, the spiritual needs of other people, We have to make sure that we are working with the whole person. We're looking at the mental, social, and emotional needs that they may have. We also need to understand that churches uh, sometimes get this wrong. It's not that, you know, filling our intellect with who God is, that's that's good stuff. But sometimes we we, we miss the entire fact that we, we have to deal with the whole person. And we don't know which person is showing up. One man once came to me in a previous church, and it was a church of a lot of elderly people. And I, he was talking about someone who was sick, and I asked him, well, would you please go to this person? And, and would you go to this person and visit him in, either in the hospital or the home, wherever he is right now? And would you uh, make sure that you pray with him before you leave? And he looked me in the eye, and this is true. And he asked the question, well, why did we hire you? And I looked him in the eye and I said, so you could do the work of God better than you're doing it now. He was a crusty old man. And I knew he didn't have a clue. He was probably more afraid than if I was before Jesus himself, okay? So I I figured, okay, I I need to help you. I want you to, to understand this person is not just sick, but he, he has, your, your, your friend has some emotional needs. And by the way, you don't have many friends, so you probably don't look at their emotional needs very easy. I want you to go to this person and just ask three things. The first question is, I mean, you just do three things. First, you ask this question. How are you doing? Just never thought of that. How are you doing? Secondly, listen. And all you need is two words. Anything else? Listen. Anything else? Now, men, we know that when it's men together, well, before I share anything else, we'd like a beer or, you know, do you want to watch the game? I get that. It's hard. But just anything else. And then I said, would you pray together? You pray for him. And he goes, I've never prayed with anyone before, one-on-one. He's been in prayer meetings. but I've never prayed with anyone before. 
Well, guess what? God is meeting a spiritual need in you too. If you watch, listen, and pray, God grows in you the eyesight of Jesus, that perfect 20-20 vision into a whole being. And you're sitting in a room and suddenly you realize God is filling you with his spirit and through what you know of his word and the experiences you've had around people and God is filling you with his thoughts and his ways. And you will leave amazed that God used you. And in the end, isn't that what we want? Not, not you know, how great a minister are you, Jim? How great a, you know, a, a carer of souls are you? But you want them to be impressed, not with us, but you want them to be sold out for Jesus. That's what you want. This is disciple making. And I want you to know, I've probably taken every class that's out there and learned it much more than that. I did it in three different languages, and they wanted me to do do German, and I said, "Uh uh-uh, no more, no mas. And I've done it a lot. And that's part of growing as a disciple. But when Jesus says his ways are growing disciples so they can make disciples and so forth until the whole world is reached from Matthew chapter 28, what he's looking at is each one of us and the people that we will come across. And how's it going? And I'm going to leave you with this. When's the last time you sat with somebody with physical, emotional needs and just asked, how are you doing? You listen to them, and you pray together. Yesterday, I wanted to go fishing. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. I wouldn't get bigger fish the rest of my life than I would if I went fishing when they closed down that pond. God showed up. And just as my car was loaded and I was ready to go, someone showed up and we talked and prayed together. And I, you know, let's be honest here, okay? When that person left, I felt like I had done what God really wanted me to do. But there was still that fishing rod in the car. And that's the tension we face. Can we drop the rod and grab the person? Let's pray. And Lord, discipleship happens at a fishing pond too. And maybe it was happening right there. Meeting each other, laughing with one another, cleaning fish together, talking about life and what's going on in our lives, in our homes, and in our work. Disciples are made there too. But Father, I pray that we understand that God's ways and God's thoughts are different than ours. And as much as we are in this great human condition together, we have to understand that you have things for us, thoughts and ways for us that are all around us. And we ask that as your disciples, followers of Jesus, when we would take those steps and gain the eyesight of Jesus into the needy souls of those around us.
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.